good trade policy is really good public administration. But again, a country as big and as vast as ours needs to have a lot of different organizations that bring people together around solving common problems. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. In our podcast this month, we're examining how the United States can advance its national interests in a change in global context. And today, my guest is Irving Williamson. Irving has over 50 years of experience in the international affairs and trade policy fields. From 2007 until his retirement in August of 2019, he was a commissioner on the U.S. International Trade Commission, serving at different times as the commission's chairman and vice chairman. He's also an Academy Fellow. Irving, thanks so much for joining me today. Okay, it's a pleasure to join you. Well, you know, you've had just really an amazing career, and trade policy doesn't necessarily seem to be something that little kids grow up to say they want to be. How did you get involved in this aspect of public service? I'm a child of the 60s, and, you know, we were having a civil rights revolution. I did get a chance to um, get an internship at the State Department and got into a program that was encouraging more minorities to consider their foreign service. When I got into the foreign service, I, and I also went to graduate school and got an MA in international affairs. And what it really interested me most was questions of development. And I went to Madagascar and Mauritius, and that was fascinating because Mauritius was getting independence and Madagascar was developing. In any case, I got very much interested, as I said, in EID work, economic development. When I came back to Washington, I also wanted some options. So I decided to go to law school at night. And it was while I was in law school, uh, one of my good friends who was an economist and said, you know, there's this really cool thing called the GATT, this general agreement on trade and tariffs. And what I found out was that trade and trade policy is really a good mixture of law and economics. And, and that's so well, I had this interest in economic development. I was also getting a law degree, and so I could put the legal tools for that use. And then when I finished law school, I was very much lucky to get an assignment to the state, to the U.S. mission to the United Nations organizations in Geneva. And that off, and the economic office there dealt with the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. They great, dealt with the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development. It dealt with the World Intellectual Property Organization and the Economic Commission for Europe. And so in a sense, all of these different organizations that were, I dealt with, over the next 40 years, I kept coming back to the issues that they were discussing. In my, when I came back to Washington, I was able to get a detail to the Treasury Department and worked on foreign investment matters. Spent a year in the aviation office. And then I spent three years on detail at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative's office because they said, hey, you're one of those few people in Washington at the time, one of the few lawyers who had actually been in Geneva. So I got to work on our wife. You know, that was my first really, get, really getting my tra- uh, trade credentials for the USTR in the early 80s. And we worked on a number of fascinating issues. I also worked on the Brazil desk at a time. They were having a financial crisis. They asked me to join the Brazil desk because they had a lot of trade issues. By the time I got there, I found out the debt crisis had come and we're dealing with financial issues. All that is just to say that that was all the kind of preparation for getting just spending the rest of my career at, in 85, I left the Foreign Service and 
moved to New York and was working for the Port Authority in New York and New Jersey because they were interested in having someone who understood international trade matters because the director of the Port Authority at the time realized that their revenue streams were very much dependent on trade flows. You know, you think about the airport, the three airports in New York, that was trade, was a very important component of their revenues. Port Authority owned the World Trade Center. Foreign firms made up a significant part, part of the rental base. And so I spent nine years doing that, which was really wonderful because it also got me to see not just trade policy from the Washington perspective, but thinking about it from a geographic region. The Port Authority is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. So we were concerned about economic development in both New York and New Jersey. We work with the export promotion agencies of the uh, state of New Jersey and the state of New York. We went to a lot of conferences where people were talking. A local congressman might have a, during World Trade Week, might have a program on uh, trade with France or trade with Europe. And we would, as a representative of the Port Authority, go to those. And so I got to think about trade policy, not just as a, you know, negotiating with other countries, but how does it affect individuals' companies? And the Port Authority had an export trading company that was helping small to medium-sized businesses get involved in international trade. And I helped them resolve some trade problems, including unfair trade practice in Japan. And so that's how I really got into trade policy. You know, I have to say, you may be the first person I've ever talked to who said GATT is cool. I just... <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, it's a special area of knowledge. But when I got to Geneva, I found out I really was. <laughs> well, anything that has that you get to do in Geneva is probably cool. So uh, the, those experiences are amazing, and you just begin to touch on, you know, so there's some really big international trade issues on the table right now. Everything from the supply chains that are tied in knots because of COVID to how the U.S. or whether the U.S. should take actions on the Nord Stream pipeline and how U.S. companies should think about their markets in China. Tell us a little bit about the role of the U.S. International Trade Commission and how it's engaged in all of these kinds of discussions. Okay. Well, the, the International Trade Commission, ITC, was originally established in 1960 as a tariff commission. And the Congress was tired of fighting the fights between the North and the South, because you know the North wanted high tariffs, protect its manufacturing, the South wanted low tariffs because it was trading with the, you know, exporting cotton and bringing in goods. And the, tire, the Congress got tired of having to try to figure these things out. So they set up the International Trade Commission to give the Congress objective advice to analyze the situation and sort of tell the Congress what should be the appropriate tariffs. And that's how the commission got started. In the in seventy five, the commission was the name was changed from the, the Tariff Commission to the International Trade Commission, in recognition of the fact that uh, tariffs were not the only important issue in trade, and there were you know there were a lot of other things, subsidies. Uh, particularly in the seventies, we were concerned about subsidies. In the eighties, later we got concerned about services trade and intellectual property protection, and so um, the commission was also not only was it to give advice on tariffs, but it was also to give advice on any issue regarding international trade that either the Congress, and particularly the House Ways and Means Committee, or the Senate Finance Committee, or uh, the U.S. Trade Representative on behalf of the President might ask. So the Commission does three things. It deals with tariffs. It deals with adjudication of uh, complaints about unfair trade 
and we're determining whether or not a domestic industry is being injured. It also deals with complaints about foreign companies infringing U.S. intellectual property rights dealing with patents. And the fourth area of work is really giving advice to the Congress and to the executive branch on trade policy matters. At a time where we got so many complicated issues facing the United States, the commission can help the executive branch and the Congress understand the issues and come up with sound objective policies. I spent about seven years before I went to the commission advising developing countries on how to organize themselves so they could participate in the World Trade Organization. At that time, I said every country needs an international trade commission because every country in a dozen negotiation has to figure out what is truly in its national economic interest. And it's going to get a lot of conflicting pressure from, say, the agriculture sector, the manufacturing sector. And it's the trade policy officials are going to have to figure out what is truly in the national economic interest. And that is what the Congress does for the uh, executive branch. And there's I really give you a very good example of this. This is something I'm really very, very excited about. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative in October asked the ITC to do a study on potential distribution effects of goods and services trade and trade policy on U.S. workers. And you're supposed to look at them by skill, wage, salary level, gender, race, ethnicity, age, income level. And especially to look at how underrepresented and underserved communities are affected by trade policies. Now, advice is really exciting. Well, for the last 20 years, you know, trade agreements have gotten a very bad rep because, rap because we talk, many people complain that they just allow foreign companies to export jobs from the U.S. to outsource jobs. So there's been a, a lot of hostility towards international trade. And so this study is actually at the same time, we've also noted that income inequality in the United States has grown since the 1980s. And this is a really a major domestic economic policy issue. And it really affects the strength of our democracy going forward. To take a look at trade how, as it affects different groups, and particularly underrepresented and underserved groups, and to look at the impact on workers, and to do a study that is inclusive, comprehensive, and deep dive, it's really very, very important because we're not going to be able to have a trade policy that's going to work for the United States if we don't really understand how it is affecting, how our trade policies are affecting underserved and marginalized people. Uh, and I've often argued that a good trade policy starts with good, sound economic policies. This hopefully will help us understand how, better understand what economic policies we really need to have if we're going to be a truly representative democracy. And I would argue that we can't be globally competitive if we are not making use of all of our people, if we don't have an economy that is inclusive and that is really serving everybody. Because in the long time, I just don't think we're going to be able to compete with China if we aren't making use of all the resources, which means the resources of all our people. Well, you make a point that I think is so important and sounds obvious, but is one that we can never lose track of, which is U.S. economic policy and trade policy have to be really tightly woven together for either of them to be successful. 
And you also, of course, earlier mentioned the WTO. And so remembering that we can't just make our own trade policy in a vacuum, right? That we are part of a global economy. And so I, I wonder, can you help us understand how the Trade Commission, the U.S. Trade Representative, the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, all of these U.S. agencies that are engaged in aspects of trade policy work together to have a consensus around U.S. trade policy, and then how we as a nation interact with the World Trade Organization to help advance our goals? Well, first think about, you know, we're, we live in a globalized economy. And one reason why the WTO was created to replace the GATT was that a lot of issues like services trade, intellectual property, some investments restrictions, those weren't covered by the GATT rules. Things like how you set product standards, whether they discriminate. If you think health standards, if you think about it, the World Trade Organization rules really impinge almost every aspect of our economy and every aspect, all government agencies in some way. I mean, the first the first case we had in the WTO that the first case that we lost was because EPA had issued some rules on petroleum products and refining that had a very legitimate environmental impact, but they did it in a way that discriminated against foreign producers. We lost the case. And so we had, we, we could do what we wanted to do. We just had to do it in a way that wasn't discriminatory. So the, the point I'm getting at is the global economy affects, you know, all government agencies, the WTO rules affect all uh, government agencies. And so the U.S. really has to be, has to make sure all agencies are involved in both formulating trade policy, implementing trade policy, and are sensitive to our international obligations. The other thing is, and and why do we worry about it? Why do we try to comply with their obligations? Well, we want other countries to comply with theirs because we have extensive export interests. We have extensive foreign investment interests. And we also want other countries not to have not to engage in unfair practices when they ship exports to the U.S. Therefore, we want the WTO to be strong. We want it also, we want it to address issues that are concerned to us, which means we also have to make sure that other countries, their economic interests are taken into account and that they're able to use the WTO rules to defend uh, their own economies if there are others who are engaged in unfair practices. In facing these global challenges, you need international cooperation. You need to have good rules. You need to obey the rules and get, so that you can get other people to obey them too. It's all, it's all tied together. I, I love the way you describe that. If you want other people to follow the rules, you've got to follow the rules too. And it's especially challenging in that kind of global marketplace that we're in. But you mentioned earlier your role at the Port Authority. I mean, trade and international partnerships don't just happen at the national and international level anymore. We see across the U.S. we have international partner cities. We have local development agencies that engage with their international partners. How do we connect that level of of international trade engagement to make sure that it stays consistent with our national policy so that we are good players in the international space? The trade representative has advisory committees, and there is an intergovernment policy advisory committee, which has state and local agencies on that advisory committee. States always want to attract foreign investment. 
And I've always said, attracting foreign investment is a beauty contest. So states want to engage in, uh, they want to make sure they have rules that are attractive to foreign firms, which also means that they want to make sure their policies don't violate international trade rules. Because that's not, you're not going to get foreign investors to come if they don't think they're going to be treated fairly. If you think about it, we want to get small and medium-sized businesses to be engaged in the international economy, too, because they're the ones who generate a lot of the jobs in the country. The IGC did a study about 10 or 12 years ago and found out that really for immigrant groups, for minorities, often a small business that's able to engage in an international trade is going to grow faster than maybe a small business that's confined to the domestic economy. Local and state government agencies are very good at assisting their, their companies to find foreign markets to export, just as they're also often good at helping them find foreign investors to come help local firms. And so that dynamic is very important as part of growing our economy. Because often the state and local agencies, they have much better touch with the local small businesses and they can provide better services than, say, someone sitting in Washington. Sister cities programs, state trade missions, that's all part of helping the U.S. compete in the global economy. And we're going to do best if we are able to do that. Are you comfortable that we do a good job of integrating all of those different activities into sort of a coherent? national policy? Yes and no. Remember I said that uh, a strong domestic economic policy is foundation for a good trade policy. And I'm afraid we haven't tackled a number of our domestic economic programs. We haven't done a good job of dealing with uh, income inequality. We haven't done a good job of dealing with uh, education, educating our citizens to compete in a global economy. We have done enough on the environment. You can just go down the list. Infrastructure. Again, how are you going to compete, have good international trade if you don't have good airports and good port facilities? And so it's clear that we need to deal with these kind of issues. And we also need to deal with it at uh, not just at the national level, but the state and local level, which is just why the National Academy of Public Administration is so important because it brings together state local agencies, and then also, you know, the academics are talking to scholars in other countries who also have the same good public, same public administration's problems. I, I'll keep saying that good trade policy is really good public administration. But again, a country as big and as vast as ours needs to have a lot of different organizations that, are, that bring people together around solving common problems. Well, and it sounds like that study that you mentioned at the beginning with the International Trade Commission may help address some of those gaps in knowledge that you were just talking about. It may, but also trade trade economists haven't been used to thinking about equity issues as much as they should. Mm -hmm. But Napa has a very active social equity group. Right. And so I'm thinking that, you know, what people may be learning in terms of uh, social equity, in terms of some local government problems, may also be applicable when we come to analyzing how trade policies are applied. We'll, we'll see, but I, yeah, but I see potential. I see some real potential there. 
I, I want to follow that equity thread because I know it, earlier in your career, you helped put together the Economic Growth and Opportunity in Africa initiative. Um, so tell us a little bit about that initiative and where it is today. Well, it's actually the foundation of U.S. trade policy towards Africa. But it really got started because one member, Jim McDermott of uh, state of Washington, his chief of staff, was very much interested in Africa, as was McDermott. And when we were doing the WTO implementing legislation, he asked the question, what does this mean for Africa? And really the point he was getting at was that for so many policymakers, they considered Africa as, a, as kind of a basket case and, you know, something that you just poured aid money into. And he kept saying, you can give a man money or, you know, fish and well, he'll eat it. But what he's going to do the next day, if you teach a man to fish, he can feed himself. And it was his idea that our trade, U.S. trade policy should be focused on Africa. The other thing that was happening is that there were economic, a number of countries in Africa who were taking economic reforms, some of them being pushed by the IMF. And the Treasury Department said, look, these countries are trying to do, undertaking difficult economic reforms. We got to support them more. And so these two thrusts came together in, in terms of the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Clinton liked the idea and was had an initiative and the, the legislation that my friend did the first drafts on slowly worked its way through the Congress. And the whole idea was that trade, not aid. Now, Congressman Rangel had to sort it out and say, it's going to have to be trade and aid because the aid <laughs> folks were really getting upset. And I mean, rightly so. But the fact is, with economic reform, countries undertaking economic reforms, they were better able to compete in the global economy. If they do that, they're going to grow faster and be, be less dependent on aid in the future. And so that was the whole idea that if we give preferential access to products from Africa, maybe they'll get a foothold in our market and they will grow faster. And I think it, it has worked somewhat. Uh, one of the things was, of course, the goal was only focused on goods trade. And as countries develop, their services become more and more important. And there are some countries in Africa whose services are growing. I mean, Ethiopian Airlines is one of the best airlines in Africa. And it's so they get brings in a lot of revenue for the country. But AGOA was really the start. I mean, because in a sense, I did a lot of AGOA seminar, training seminars, how to, how to make use of AGOA, how to make use of this legislation. And what I at least like to say is before we had the legislation, there were a whole lot of entrepreneurs in Africa who weren't thinking about trading with the U.S. And it doesn't make a difference if whether those goods are duty-free or not. If you're not thinking about trading with the U.S., you're not going to be trying. And so you kind of stimulated more thought about competing globally. A lot of African countries had to sort of help their private sector think about how they're going to compete in the U.S. market. They also had to think about how to comply with WTO rules, because I also did a couple of WTO accession projects in Ethiopia and Cape Verde. And what I was finding from that was that the economic reforms that the government had to take in order to join the World Trade Organization were the kind of economic reforms that made them more competitive in the global market, enabled their investor, their own companies to be more globally competitive. So the AGOA legislation is since an effort to stimulate economic growth in Africa, and I think it's contributed to that. The other interesting thing about the legislation, it also talked about the U.S. should be thinking about free trade agreements with the countries in Africa. 
Now, we haven't done that yet, but we've started those discussions. It also has helped tremendously that in the last three or four years, the African countries themselves have negotiated an African continental free trade agreement. And they are actually moving quite fairly rapidly on that. So a lot of things are coming together that offer the potential that Africa can be more globally economic competitive. I mean, COVID is another, it's a scary thing. And there's, that's going to be some of the setback we have to deal with that. Right. But um, in the sense, if my friend, his name was Mike Williams, and he hadn't asked the question, what's in, what's in it for Africa with the WTO? We may not have gotten, you know, we wouldn't have had this, these kind of tools. Right, right. Well, your experience on the ground certainly gives you the perfect view to say, you know, 20 years ago, we had the vision to pass this act and, and we can see the change that it's led to in the U.S. and Africa's trade relationships. I just, you know, kind of as we wrap up here, I know, it, as you mentioned, and as we talked about earlier, you've lived and worked around the globe and been in trade policy for most of your life. And it seems like the the global trade situation is continuing to grow in complexity. So as you look to the future, you know, what recommendations do you have for how the U.S. can be most effective as it interacts with the global community in this economic and trade space? First, we have to pursue the domestic and economic reforms that we to make ourselves more globally competitive, you know, infrastructure, education, you know the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But we can't we can't wait until we do that to be to, to engage with the rest of the world because things are happening too fast. And so I think we need to continue to engage with our our allies. We need to continue to engage with the Chinese. And it's interesting they do, you know, there's this thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was in negotiating in the Obama administration. And then Trump pulled out of it. Well, now the Chinese are trying to join the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership or its successor organization. And yet, we wrote the rules for that organization. So we should be there to get the benefits of the rules that we wrote in, in our favor. So that's part of the continuing to engage in the rest of the world. Now, I realize that this economic engagement, dealing with China, it's tough looking at the issues themselves, it's particularly tough because of the, the political environment in which we're in. But going forward, I think we have no choice. We're gonna to have to reform our economy. We're gonna to have to have, deal with uh, inequality, but we also have to strengthen our trading relationships. We're gonna to have to strengthen WTO rules. We've got a problem with the dispute settlement body and how that operates and we gotta negotiate a better system. We're big. We're a big country with a lot of resources. We have one of the best university systems in the world. We attract a lot of talent. We have to use all that talent to deal with our domestic and our and to compete globally. It's going to be tough, but I don't see any choice because if you don't move forward, you're not. You're going to be moving backwards. Well, Irving. I- you know, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today to talk through. I mean, we we could talk for hours on the complexity, but I love the way that you tied domestic economic development and international engagement together to have a coherent policy going forward and also laying out the real challenges that are ahead of us. Thanks so much for your life's work in this space. And thanks for spending time with us today on the podcast. 
Thank you. No, it was a pleasure this, because these are important issues. Thank you. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.